we're in Genesis chapter 20. Um, we're going we're gonna to cruise here and uh, get through this. And so I'm amazed you came back after preaching two chapters out of Genesis last week. Uh, that was fun. Um, but uh, thanks for being here this morning. If you remember, uh, Abraham um, is, uh, has, a, has a meeting with the Lord and then these two other angels, and he's talking with God, and then uh, these, the, God says, or the Lord, Yahweh, says he's going to go down and he's going to see if w- the outcry that he's heard against Sodom, this wicked city, is actually true, and if so, then he's going to judge them for that. And Abraham hears this and he uh, advocates for, he intercedes for these people. He intercedes for Lot, um, his nephew, and so he's, he's pleading with the Lord, and he's, he's praying for Lot, and what we saw through that is just this massive comparison between this guy Lot, who uh, basically offers his daughters up to be raped, and uh, Abraham, who is just this towering man of God, who is praying for these people. He cares for them. He loves them, and so we see this comparison, and in the end, we see the way that Lot went with his life, and it just it really ends in disaster for his family. And Abraham is kind of the last man standing in a sense, and he is just this towering figure of righteousness. And then we read chapter 20. Let's go. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent innocent people? Did not... Uh, Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I uh, I, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. I think God was using air quotes there. Yeah, right. Okay, cool. Uh, In the integrity of your heart and, and by the way, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have, uh, you have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother." 
Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given uh, your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, this is completely fascinating. And it's fascinating because God has just shown us something amazing about this guy, Abraham. We see Abraham at the heights of faith where he's believing God and it's counted to him as righteousness. He, he believes God, it says, and it's counted to him as righteousness. And he's walking by faith and it, he has this amazing life in so many respects. But if you remember earlier in Abraham's wife, Abraham's life, I should say, uh, he has done this once before when he went to Egypt and ticked off the Pharaoh at that time for the very same reason. And so here we are again uh, doing the same exact thing over and over and over again. And what we uh, really can see from this is that the people that we think are these amazing heroes are often not amazing heroes. In fact, if you have paid attention at all to popular culture, you would see that people that were respected at one time or another are now being completely shamed and denigrated in our culture because of some way or another in which they have acted, uh, especially towards women, through the Me Too movement and things of that nature. So the Me Too movement has brought up this idea that like, if you've ever done anything wrong, and I would agree, don't hear me speaking against the mis- or, or, or for, I should say, the mistreatment of women or men for that matter. Don't hear me speaking against that. But let me just say this, that in our culture, if you're found to be at fault, if you're found to be unrighteous according to the standards of culture, you are shamed. You're publicly shamed. You're shamed in front of everyone, and you are banished from society. Our society has never been, I believe, at a greater level of uh, ungraciousness. Ungraciousness towards people who are found to be sinners. For people who are found to have done something wrong. And so then we have other people who stand up and say something to the effect of, I would never do that. I would never be a part of that. I would, I, w- I would never do this. I would never do that. But in reality, what we know in our heart of hearts is this, is that there is no one righteous. There is nobody sitting in this room who has not sinned in some way so egregiously that if it was plastered on social media, if there was pictures of it, if there was whatever... That we would not be sh- There's nobody here that would not feel incredibly shameful over that, and we could never enter into politics. We could never become a celebrity. And that's because there is really only one righteous man. What is God trying to show us? Why does he show us that this guy, Abraham, who is like this founding father, 
why does God show us his faults? Now, what we can think sometimes is that if I'm a Christian, then I need to act like a Christian. Now, that's very true. I'm not speaking against that. But what we find out oftentimes is that we read through the scriptures kind of superficially, and we come upon somebody like Abraham or David or, you know, and any of these other figures, uh, Moses and, and, and so on, throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, is that if we actually only read the parts that we really want to read, the, you know, the, these crazy stories of faith or whatever, we really miss what's in between there. Because this story about this king Abimelech and how Abraham has said, once again, she is my sister, when in reality, she is his wife, and she also happens to be his sister. Apparently, they were doing this back then. A little weird, I know. But here we have this guy who has done it again. He's done it again. You look at the life of Moses, and you look how he sinned. And the way he treated the people as he was striking the rock to bring water out of it. And then God disciplines him and doesn't allow him to go into the promised land. And you look at David, King David, who's a man after God's own heart. And here is a guy who uh, sees a woman bathing. He brings her into his house. They engage physically. She gets pregnant. He has her husband killed. And he suffers the consequences of that. Here is a guy who is a, another towering figure of the Old Testament. Over and over and over again, what we see is that we, we see that the people that God uses are so frequently and really always flawed. Always flawed. There really is only one righteous man, and that is Jesus Christ, the God-man. And so Abraham stands as a Christ figure, even though he is not Christ. And, but what, what we see in him is we see imperfection, and yet God still using him. So how should we respond to what God is showing us here? First of all, we can be thankful. We can be thankful that God chooses to show us the imperfections in amazing men and women of God. That God chooses to show us the imperfections of these people who are doing amazing, amazing things. See, here's what we do. Here's our issue with our culture is that uh, at first we find out about somebody. We, we love what they do. We love their politics. We love how they think. We love how they dress. We love perhaps everything about them. And so we deify them. We, we essentially, we begin to worship them. We worship them and we say, you're amazing. You're incredible. I, uh, I love this person. I love this candidate. I love, I love, I love. We deify them. We turn them into our God. But then as soon as we find out that they're like a Abraham, that they're like Moses, that they're like David, that they're like Peter, that they're like whatever, we vilify them. We vilify them when we say, I can never follow this person again. I can never look at them and, 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 and see, uh, you know, the, the good things that they've done. I can never properly look at them again and not think about the fact that they are a sinful human being. Take our, our founding fathers, for instance. When you look at the founding fathers that actually owned slaves, we would like to think that the founding fathers were, were all the good people of 
uh, of America. But the founding fathers, such as George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Benjamin Franklin, and others, all owned slaves. And so we can look back on that and we can say, man, these were horrible, horrible people. And yet you can look at their life and you can say there were some amazing things that they did, but they had this thing in their life. And then we can look at these public figures. We can look at the candidates that lose everything because, you know, the sex tape or you found out about the, the affair and these are, these are real issues. These are, these are big things. We can look at the, the celebrities and see what they've gone through and decide that we don't want to like them anymore. But we can be thankful that God shows us something. Not for the sin in Abraham's life, but for the revelation through the scriptures of sinful human beings being used in service by God for his grand plan of redemption. See, God's servants are not perfect people. God's servants are not perfect people. There's nobody here who sits in perfection. There's nobody here who's done everything right all the time. And we can be thankful that we see that God is, is almost kind of relieving the pressure a little bit. And he's saying, man, Abraham wasn't perfect either, but I am using this imperfect guy, this broken guy, to do my perfect work. That is amazing. See, God's servants have character flaws. They have lapses in judgment. They have sinful patterns. It doesn't mean that we should not be watching out for that, but God wants us to see what's going on in Abraham's life. And, and, and yet it is a warning, and that's the second thing. The first thing is that we should be thankful that God chooses to show us this, but then secondly, we need to be warned. We need to be warned that just like Abraham, we all have sinful tendencies. You saw in the passage where Abraham had said, hey, when God called me from my father's house, that's when I turned to Sarah, and her name was Sarai at the time, and I said to her, hey, if ever we get in this situation, how about you just call me your brother, and I'll just call you my sister. That way, I'll save my own skin, and everything should be fine. And as I said, he had already tried this once before, but here we have an established pattern of lying. Like 25 years earlier, here, this guy, he has been hearing from God, uh, walking with God in faith, fearing God in so many respects. But every time this situation is presented to him, what happens? He gets fearful. He is motivated by fear. His fear overcomes his faith. In other words, Abraham didn't trust that God had control over this situation and he believed that God needed help. Look at what he says in verse 11. It says, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. And what was he saying? He, he was basically saying this. There's no fear of God in, in this place. There's no moral code. There's no religion that would keep them from killing me. 
And so he's saying to Abimelech, when Abimelech says, hey, why did you do this to me? He's saying, I feared your lack of moral code, so I broke a moral code so that I would not be killed. He's saying, I feared that you didn't fear, and so I feared, and so this is what I did. There's always a reason behind it. This is, this is his first excuse. His excuse is, I feared that this was going to happen, and so I lied. I feared that this was going to take place. How many things had God done in his life? How much faith did, was, was he seen to have? Like, it, it's amazing when you see his life, and then you see something like this, and you go, how does this guy, how does this happen? How does this take place? It's because it's an established pattern of sin that had never been resolved. And ladies and gentlemen, when we hear about these things publicly, when this, when this comes about, it's typically, that's not the first time that that happened. It's not the first time that that took place. And we know, we know how it's, how it's, how it's going to go. You find out like this guy kind of touched this person inappropriately or smelled their hair recently. <laughs> that was weird, but whatever. Uh, it does smell nice. Okay, uh, but you find that out, and then you find out this, and then you find out that. And regardless of whether you think that that's criminal or, or whatever it is, it's, it's, a, it's an established pattern, not just in his life, but in other people's lives. It's an established pattern of what they're doing. You and I have established patterns. And it's a, an, an established pattern of not fearing God, but fearing other people. Ultimately, if we feared God more than we feared other people, we would not continue to engage in that. So when you see an established pattern of sin in your life, when you see how I have this tendency all the time, what you can say about this is, is that even though I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ, even though I'm walking with him, even though I trust him to save me, what is true about me is that in this particular area, I am prone to not fear God, but to fear man. I fear man in this situation, or I fear the loneliness that would come about as a result. I, I fear this, I fear that. Instead of actually fearing God, that was what Abraham's deal was. It resulted in lying. He tells a half-truth. He says, you know, besides, uh, you know, indeed, uh, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, in verse 12. He said, you know, I, I mean, I, I kind of told you most of the truth. No, it was allowing Abimelech to believe a half-truth. That was lying. And then it was nothing new. Old habits die hard. It really is true. So the first thing is that we need to be thankful that God shows us that people who are used by God still have imperfections and God still works. He still brings about his grand master plan. But then secondly, we can be warned that we have the same sinful tendencies. In fact, all of us on some level or another deal with this very same thing. And third, we can be confident. We can be confident in this, and that is that God will continue to work through this. 
God's going to continue to work through all of our failings and all of our issues and all of our uh, problems. God's going to continue to work in your life and in my life. It says this, look at verse 7. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you. Look at what God is doing here. Like, why is God still calling him a prophet? In fact, that's the first time that anybody in the scriptures is called a prophet. Here's this guy who totally lies, totally doesn't fear God, right after he should be fearing God. And it's shocking that God would still say to Abimelech in this dream, now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, the guy who lied to you, the guy who put your whole nation at risk because God had closed the wombs of his wives and so forth. He put all of them at risk, and yet God still calls him a prophet. And then secondly, that this guy who lied to you, he is going to pray for you. In large part, when you look at Abimelech, you just go, hey, shouldn't Abimelech be praying for Abraham? Like, he seems to hear more from God, at least in this situation, than Abraham. <coughs> shouldn't, I mean, th this just seems so weird, but here's God's commitment. God's commitment is to the man that he called in this situation. He calls Abraham, and he is not letting that go. He's not letting Abraham go. And guess what? God is not letting you go. And in fact, he goes beyond that in verse 17. And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. And he healed his wife and everyone else. God not only says, you're still a prophet, he, uh, you're, you're going to pray for him, but your prayers are going to be effective. Effective prayer. God still uses people who screw everything up. And I don't know about you, but that feels like an amazing realization to me. That feels like, oh, that's, it, it's, it's, it's a relief that God would still love me, that he would still call me his own, that he would still work with me, that he would still uh, continue to use me in these ways. And guess what? It brings about humility, I hope, in my life and in your life as well. They would say, I don't deserve to be used by you, God. There's so many ways that, that, that I don't follow you in this situation or that situation. And yet God still loves us and allows us to serve him. It's shocking. There's a theological phrase, and it's called simul eustus et peccator. It's from Martin Luther. It, was, it, is, it is to in order to uh, communicate this concept. And the concept is essentially this. It's simul, means simultaneously. Eustus is just or righteous. That's where we get our word justice. Et is and, and uh, that is not the right spelling there. It should be peccator, P-E-C-C-A-T-O-R. There we go. So peccator, uh, which means sinner. It means this, simultaneously righteous and sinful. Woo! That's amazing. We got somebody who's on it right now. Fabulous. Simultaneously righteous and sinful. 
See, when we, when we come to faith, or when you're thinking about coming to faith in Jesus Christ, when you're thinking about following God, one of the things that could come up in your mind is you can think, but I'm not worthy. I don't have it all together. I'm still screwing things up. I'm still uh, messing things up. Or you come to faith. You have this amazing conversion. And then you find out in your life, like Abraham did, hey, this sin is still in me. It's still a part of me. How can I be saved when I'm sinful? How can I have relationship with God when I'm sinful? I'm supposed to be righteous, but yet I'm sinful. See, Martin Luther kind of coined this phrase to help us understand something. And that is that when you come to faith, Jesus gives you his righteousness. It is counted to you. It is reckoned to you. You don't possess it as though, as though you had done it, but God reckons it as though you possess it. It doesn't immediately change you when you come to faith. It doesn't immediately cause you to be a perfect person. You don't come out of the baptismal waters just going, all right, let's do this. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to make this happen. We're going we're gonna to never do anything wrong again. That doesn't take place. So how do we deal with this? Well, it's simultaneously righteous and sinful. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith says this about this concept. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith itself the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not themselves. It is the gift of God. What that is essentially saying is that the people that God calls are not perfect people, but God gives to us, he transfers to us a record that is not our own. Take, for instance, this. When I was a kid and my parents would, would go, I lived down in Florida, and when they would go to Miami for the night, that's as I go into Portland here, when they go, would go to Miami uh, for the night, me and my brothers hit the streets, all right? And uh, we hit the streets and we went to a really dangerous place, the bowling alley down the street. And so we would go to this bowling alley, and I would play this pinball game till, you know, till we realized that mom and dad were going to be on their way home. So I was out late playing this. That's, that's really the sum total of my video game experience. Now, I put my name in there, and I was, I was, I was getting up in the ranks and, 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 and getting there. I, I kept getting better and better at this because I always did this. But it would be a little bit like this. It would be a little bit like somebody who is a pinball wizard, right? Uh, somebody, uh, don't think about that song. So it'd be like somebody who's totally good at this game. And they were to say, hey, take my user. Take my little three-letter designation for my initials. Take my record, and I want you to use that. 
I want you to use that. That's counted as yours now. It is yours. My perfections as a game player are yours, even though you did not do that. This is what Jesus does for us. Even though we still screw up, even though we still lose a game here or there, God has given us, through Jesus Christ, he has given us the record of Jesus. So what we know is this, is that when you look at Abraham and you say, how can God use this guy who's totally screwed things up? It's not because Abraham has become a perfect person. It is because through his faith, God has given him a righteousness that he does not possess, even though he is simultaneously sinful at the very same time. Simultaneously sinful. We see this in the Apostle Paul. If you were to look at Romans chapter 7, verse 13, and begin in verse 15. Romans chapter 7, verse 15, it says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. No, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is the Apostle Paul who's writing the New Testament, and he is essentially saying, like, I am doing things that I don't want to do, and I see that because the law shows me that I shouldn't be doing that. But it's not me. It is, it's this sin in me. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I want to do what's right, but I, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now here's, here's the thing. Here's, I think, a good measure of what it means to be a believer. You can look at your sin and you can doubt yourself all the time. You can doubt yourself all the time. Andy Crouch has this amazing article that talks about how our culture is moving towards an honor-shame culture. We're like Asian cultures. They're deeply concerned about shame and honor. Ours is more of a fame-shame culture. And so you can look at yourself, you can look at your sin, and you can think to yourself, if anybody were to find this out, if anybody were uh, to, to, to find out where I'm at, I'd be in so much trouble, or I, I would be castigated, or anything like that. And so you can feel this incredible shame, and you, you can begin to doubt, do I even know Jesus Christ as Savior? Do I even have relationship with him? Do I, am I even walking with him? Why else would I be doing this? But here's what you, what you need to hear. The Apostle Paul says, says, like, this is the stuff that I don't want to do. It's, it's, I don't want to do these things, but I, I, it's compulsive. It's driving me to do them. And I don't know why. I don't want to do that. And that's the question that you have to ask. Is that when you get involved in that sin, when it happens again, 
when you're in that situation is that you've got to ask yourself, you've got to wake up from that stupor and you've got to ask yourself, is this really what I want? Do I love this? Because I think the, the difference many times between somebody who has relationship with Jesus Christ and someone who doesn't is somebody who says, I hate doing this against God. God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want to be engaged with this. But God, I want to do what's right. I want to follow you. I want to be about your will. Paul says, I don't do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. See, we are simultaneously sinful and righteous. He goes on to say this. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Like I want to follow God. I want to serve him. But I see in my members, I see in my body another law that is waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he exclaims, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He is saying, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, listen to this. Like, you can be sitting there and you can say, I'm sorrowful for, for the sin that I have. I don't want to cheat on my wife. I don't want to engage in this illicit behavior, whatever it is, drugs, you know, sex, violence, pride, gluttony, uh, gossip. I don't want to engage in those things. Laziness, not following Jesus when I, when I should be. I don't want to follow those things. But it has to get from there, and it has to go to this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It has to be that I have to say uh, that, that I acknowledge this, that even in the midst of my sinfulness, even in the midst of the things that I do that I don't want to do, the only way that I have righteousness is through Jesus Christ. The only way that I have any goodness in me is through Jesus Christ. Guys, do you see how amazing that is? When you look at all of the people who get shamed in our culture, all of the people who get shamed on social media, all of that stuff, and you look at this and you say, there is hope in Jesus Christ for those who are being publicly shamed. Do you sh feel shameful? There is hope in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 1, which is the next verse right after this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. Jesus has taken the shame. Do you know that the cross is an instrument of shame? Yes, it's an instrument of death. There's many ways that you could kill somebody, but the cross is an instrument of shame. It's intended to bring about or to maximize shame, to be stripped completely bare, completely bare. 
to be set out on a road where everybody can see you so that people can mock you and hit you and beat you, to be whipped, to all of these things, the shame that is involved in that act. Jesus took it all. It was the most shameful thing that could possibly be. And Jesus took it. He took it for you. And so when you think about the ways that you act just like Abraham does, that you continue to fail, you can be thankful that God shows us that Abraham failed. You can be thankful that God showed us that Moses failed. You can be thankful that God shows us that David and Paul and Peter and many other people in the scriptures, that they, we can be thankful that we see that. We can be warned that we should watch out for those sins. But we can also be confident. That we can be confident. It says in Philippians 1, 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Your faith cannot be in your ability to do what's right. Your faith must be in Christ alone. And what he did for you on the cross and for me on the cross. And when we see occasions of sin in our life, and when we see sinful patterns that arise after 25 years, we can say, thanks be to God, who through Jesus Christ has saved me from all my sin, from all my shame, and even though that sin is persistent in my life and seems to refuse to go away, God still sees me as righteousness because of my faith. And he's counted it to me. It's mine. It is yours. You don't have to be shamed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm praying for so many folks in this room right now, Lord, really for all of us. That, Lord, we, uh, we're aware of all of the ways that we have sinned against you or other people. And, Lord, it, it, it's just an enormous pressure. But, Lord, you, you are so gracious in showing us the faultiness of your servants. We praise you for showing us this. And Lord, I pray that we would respond in faith and just saying you are such a good God that you would save us even in the midst. While we were still sinners, you died for us. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this. And Lord, I pray that we would respond by trusting in you, by not fearing man, but Lord, ultimately changing who we fear to be fear of you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.